Well, tonight, like Rich said, is our last night together on Thursdays, at least for the next couple weeks. How many of you, just curious, are um, going to be here on Sunday? Raise your hand. Raise them high. Oh, boy. We planned one service thinking that most of you would be gone. So, <laughs> most of you will be here. All right. So, you can help me out by sitting in the front row on Sunday. We agree? We fill up the front row first? Awesome. Well, I got like 30%, so that's okay. How many chairs are up here? We'll probably add another row in the front um, because I realized that kind of spur of the moment. I was like, wow, I, I, I don't know how many of them are actually going to be here on Sunday. Um, if it's a lot, then it's going to be really tight. Uh, so help me out, please, as the one who plans our services. All right. Well, at the, at the tail end of the semester, I just I want to say we've had a tremendous year together, and um, I'm just so encouraged by you guys. Each time we're here uh, studying the scriptures together, they're one of my favorite times of the week. Just hearing you sing, just thinking about that even now, um, it was just a blessing. And so tonight is our fourth and final lesson on personal evangelism. And it's really been a crash course. We could talk a lot more about this topic, but we just kind of had four weeks, and I, I fit our series into what I had to work with. So uh, we started, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we started by looking at how the Bible frames up evangelism. So evangelism is what? How would you define it? Short definition. Give me what you got. Okay, teaching the good news, yes, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news about Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. We gave a slightly longer definition in that first week, and it went like this. Evangelism is the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry, and it's with the aim of persuading to a life of discipleship. So it's the preaching of Christ, the confronting of idolatry, with the aim to persuade to a life of discipleship. So that was week one. We were looking at, at what, what is evangelism and how is it carried out in the Bible. Then week two, we got a taste for how the Bible motivates us to evangelize. So evangelism is tough. Uh, the fear of man is often present. You know, we kind of feel that our palms get sweaty, our mouth dries up when we think about crossing the pain line in evangelism. And that's because oftentimes we, we fear Evangelism is always risky, and so it exposes our fear of man. And, and to overcome that fear, we've got to have a greater fear. We have a greater conviction, and that conviction comes from the truth. Knowing the truth, truths like the reality that God is in control, our evangelism can't fail, that motivates us to, to overcome our fear and to share the good news. We learn that we must yield to this truth by faith and act on it. And we're often acting on it contrary to how we feel, right? We still feel nervous, but um, when we have convictions, we act and live by those convictions. So we've got to know that. So that was week two. Gave you kind of a smattering of those motivations. And then last time, in week three, we got practical. And I gave you some encouragements on how to actually be faithful in practicing evangelism. And and specifically, evangelism in your relationships. And my main burden in that lesson was to give you an example of what it would look like to befriend someone, befriend an unbeliever, and then 
start to understand them, and then clearly share the gospel with them. So that was week three. And tonight, as you can see on the screen, we're going to shift gears a little bit, slightly. We're going to look at the relationship of the corporate church to evangelism. All right? The corporate church, the church at large, how, how, how do we as the corporate church evangelize? So far in this series, we've emphasized the individual side of evangelism, so thus my title, Personal Evangelism. But how should the corporate church evangelize? What is the role of the church in evangelism? Or how does the church as a whole evangelize? Rich mentioned we have a new members class coming up, and almost in every new members class, without fail, someone asks this question. They're always interested in what our church does for, quote-unquote, outreach, right? And usually, they're thinking of events or programs. Things like, you know, do we, are we involved in any kind of soup kitchen or coat drive, trunk retreats, block parties, Easter egg hunts, neighborhood cleanups, you know, on and on they go. They want to know what organized events that we get behind. Because they usually envision outreach as a program or as an event to participate in. But the problem with most of these events is that many times they take a lot of time, right? They take a lot of energy, they take a lot of resources from the church, and yet often the gospel isn't even proclaimed. Remember our definition of evangelism? It's a proclamation of the gospel, right? And even if the gospel is proclaimed at these events, it's usually tacked on to the end of the event. And it's certainly not why people came. They came for the Easter eggs, right? Because we advertise the Easter eggs. It is an Easter egg hunt. And so sometimes these events can even feel a bit dishonest. We invited you for a carnival, but the real reason was to give you the gospel. It's kind of that classic bait and switch. But before we get too critical, it, it bears acknowledgement that the Lord can certainly use these programs and even the bait-and-switch ones to save people. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not critiquing that. The Lord can, can save people in however He wants. But I don't think these programs are the most effective or even the primary way that people come to faith in Jesus. There was a study done for people under the age of 21 who had come to faith in Christ. And the question was, did you come, how did you come to faith? Was it through TV or media or some sort of program? Or was it through sort of a personal, personal encounter with another Christian? 1% said they came to faith in Christ through an event. 43% said they came to faith in Christ through a conversation from a friend or family member. Now again, that's just anecdotal survey, you know, but that's interesting nonetheless. So, if a programs take up a lot of time and they often don't produce as many results, why do we often gravitate toward them? Why is it a question in every new members class of what, what do we do for outreach? Well, I think the main reason is that we all know that we should be evangelizing more than we do. Agree with that? And because you feel that way, you feel guilty because you don't. You agree with that? Okay, But many times, 
people are not quite willing to repent of our fear of man. We're not quite ready to sacrifice to the extent necessary to actually share the gospel. And so we settle for options that are less risky, like throwing a fun event for the community. And so we call that our outreach for the year. The program is often easier than actually confronting a friend with the gospel. And we're tempted to feel better about ourselves, thinking that we've been faithful in evangelism by making snow cones, when in actuality our fear of man and love of comfort remains intact. But that still raises the question, doesn't it? So does the corporate church even have a role in evangelism? Well, the answer is yes, and it's a resounding yes. But it might not be the way you think, especially if you were conditioned like I was to the program-based evangelism. I mean, that's what I grew up in. Um, We did Easter pageants. I was Jesus in a play one time. Yeah, not pretty. As an unbeliever, okay? So, Lord have mercy. But they were, so programs abound. I get it. So what I wanted, I wanted to do tonight is to show you, kind of tie up our study by showing you that a healthy church will, in fact, over time, produce fruitful evangelism. It's inevitable. If a church is healthy, it will produce fruitful evangelism, and we'll consider at least six reasons a healthy church will lead to fruitful evangelism, and we'll see kind of how the church is to evangelize. So the first reason that a healthy church will lead to fruitful evangelism is that it equips disciples to evangelize. So what's the role of the church in evangelism? It, It actually, its first and primary role is to equip disciples and equip disciples to maturity so they grow to maturity and that maturity included in that is evangelism. And you can see this clearly in Ephesians 4. We've been there multiple times. Just make mention of it here while you're, you're writing it down. The purpose of the corporate gathering, the purpose of the churches it gathers, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's for maturity. So you see this clearly in chapter 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for a purpose to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that results in the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God's given gifts to the church in the form of men, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, and teachers. And the purpose when we gather is for us to equip you in the truth so that you grow, so that you become mature, and you look more and more like Jesus. That's, that's the fullness of Christ. That's what he's talking about there. So that means then, consider this, all right? When a church member fails to evangelize, it can only mean one thing. The church member is not very mature. 
they're still in the tossed around category that he talks about here in Ephesians 4. Children, verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves. Why is that? Why, why does it show? Because mature disciples, they evangelize. So in other words, failure to evangelize is actually a maturation issue. It's a maturity issue. And all we have to do to think this through is remember back to why we're so often unwilling to share the gospel. Why? We're afraid, right? There's fear. Fear of man. And that's a maturity issue, isn't it? When we're equipped to overcome our fear of man, we're equipped by the truth through the preaching ministry of the church, when we're equipped to overcome the fear of man, we will share the gospel. Like, that's the hindrance. When we see the glory of Christ and our zeal for His mission is deepened, when we understand His mission, we're going to make sacrifices for the mission. And if we're unwilling to sacrifice for it, then that means we don't understand it. We don't see the glory of Christ like we ought to. Because if we did, we would live for it. We would make sacrifices for it. We, it shows that we don't really trust Him like we think we do if we're unwilling to evangelize. And so as hard as that may be to kind of hear and let that sink in, that's, that's, it's really a simple truth. That our failure to evangelize or our lack thereof is a discipleship issue. It's a maturity issue. So that means then the most powerful way that the corporate church can evangelize is by actually equipping the saints to be mature and like Jesus. Do we agree? So from the preaching to the discipleship ministry... We aim for depth, in other words, for depth. The more like Jesus we are, the brighter we will shine in this unbelieving world, and the more bold we will be in proclaiming the gospel. Or you can think about it like this. The more discerning we are for ourselves, the more discerning we will be for unbelievers. the more quickly we can see our root issues and our idolatry and learn to turn and repent of that, the, the clearer we will be in helping unbelievers see their root issues and calling them to turn and repent and follow Christ in those as well. And so then, that means, you can think about, it, think about it like this, we gather to be equipped and then we scatter to evangelize. Right? You gather to be equipped and you scatter to evangelize. We send out, you know, you think about the options, okay? You could, you know, our pastors could just do evangelistic sermons, and then you have one evangelist and one opportunity per week to evangelize. Or you could equip 600 evangelists, and they could all go out in their respective spheres of influence and evangelize for the other six days of the week in their families, in their, church, in their workplaces, um, in everywhere they go. So that is, I think, the biblical model. I think this is what you see in Scripture. But what happens if we begin catering to unbelievers in our church services? Or if we focus all of our ministry efforts on evangelism, or even on missions, as noble as that is, if we focus on those things to the exclusion of maturity, exclusion of teaching for depth, 
what happens? Well, if we stop the depth and we focus just on evangelizing unbelievers, that's going to lead to an anemic church. Because we're not feeding the sheep. It will lead to a church without much discernment. It will lead to a church without any conviction or zeal in the, in the world as they live in the world. It will lead to a church that's enslaved to the fear of man. And they won't be evangelizing out there. To a church that's tempted with allurements of the world and to make this a comfortable place for unbelievers. And it will be the end of the church. Christ will remove our lampstand because we will have left our first love, to use the language of Revelation. So lots at stake here in this first point, this first reason that a healthy church will evangelize because that healthy church is going to be equipping its disciples to evangelize because evangelism is a, is a discipleship issue. So that means then, you know, I don't know if some of you are new here or you've not been around much, but the best thing you can do, the first and primary thing you can do as a believer is to embed yourself in a healthy church so that you will be equipped to evangelize more faithfully. Right? That's the first and best thing you can possibly do um, if you want to be a fruitful evangelist. Because here's where we're going to train you to do that. All right, the second reason that a healthy church will lead to fruitful evangelism is because it intercedes together for unbelievers and it intercedes for opportunities with them. So it's a praying church. The church will, a healthy church is a praying church. And Christ loves to answer the prayers of his people, especially for conversion. So I wrote down Colossians 4, 2-4 here, because you see this in, um, in Paul's ministry. At the end, uh, beginning of that chapter, as he's kind of bringing the, the letter to a close, he says in verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us, Paul's doing evangelistic work, okay? Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So they're praying that God would give them an opportunity. Would open a door for them to speak the gospel. So they're praying for opportunities. You, we could, I didn't write down other verses, but we could just as easily scan Scripture and see that Paul himself intercedes for unbelievers, that God would save them. Uh, he asked for prayers for himself, that he would be bold um, in, the, in the gospel proclamation. So the point is that as we're on our knees, we're begging God to help us, to save people, to make us bold, to give us opportunities, God's going to answer that prayer. It's not just sort of a, a, a Christian thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray. And we're supposed to ask God for stuff because he's going to respond. So, a church, a healthy church, is going to be a church that meets together corporately in groups, friendships, to pray for the unbelievers in our lives. Pray for them by name. And it's going to be praying for our neighbors, our opportunities with those folks. And 
there will be seasons in my life where, sadly, I will kind of drift out of praying for unbelievers at different times beyond those in my family, you know. And it's always amazing that when I begin to pray for my neighbors again, it's like now I'm sensitized to the need. You follow me on that? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You start praying for unbelievers, and you're like, wow, okay, yes, I can kind of get in my groove. You know, I get home from work, get home from church, get out of my car. There's my neighbor walking down the street. I don't even think about it. Go in, think about my family. But if I'm praying for unbelievers, that, and especially those ones right across the street or wherever they are, then I'm sensitized to the need. The Lord often uses that to, to show me that there's opportunities all around for the taking. So prayer sensitizes us to the need. So talk to each other about those that you're evangelizing and commit to pray for each other in this area and for opportunities. That's what a healthy church does. And if you're gifted in evangelism, if like this is a burden for you, I've talked to some of you folks that this is, you know, the series is like, yeah, like get it. You know, I feel like I'm the only one doing it. If, if that's what you feel, if you think that, first, you're not the only one doing it, but if, you think, if you're thinking in those categories, you have a burden for it, great, but don't be discouraged if those around you don't seem as zealous. Instead, consistently ask for prayer. Ask for prayer and pray along with them that they too might grow in boldness to share the gospel. Because you're probably gifted in this area. And it's a burden for you because you are. So, amen. So provoke the others in the ministry, provoke the others in this group by your example. And one of the ways that you can talk about it is through prayer. Get on your knees before the Lord with other people and lead them in prayer in this great and noble endeavor. Alright, so that's the second reason that a healthy church will evangelize. And the third reason that a healthy church will lead to fruitful evangelism is that it promotes a variety of faithful strategies among the members. Right? A healthy church is going to promote really faithful methods. And it's going it's to kind of prohibit unfaithful ones or less helpful strategies. And there's, there's a difference between the two of them in the Bible. There are faithful methods and there are unfaithful methods. Faithful motivations and strategies to accompany them and unfaithful motivations and strategies to accompany those. So I listed a bunch of texts here and um, I just kind of put reference these texts because you put them together and I think you'll see, you'll see what I mean. In the Bible, unfaithful methods of evangelism are described in a couple places. All right, one of them is in 2 Corinthians 4.2, where Paul's saying we, what, what they've renounced. They've renounced certain things as evangelists, as people who are sharing the gospel. They've renounced certain kinds of ways of sharing the gospel, certain motivations. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So any method that's not transparent, any method that's tampering with God's word, any method that can't commend itself to just sort of the the bare-chested open statement of the truth, is to be rejected. Those are disgraceful, handed ways, Paul would say. There's, a, there's an aspect of cunning to it. 
And I think a lot of those sort of bait and switch examples would, would you know, maybe not be to the full extent. I think right motives can, can do this, you know, out of ignorance or whatever. But sometimes um, these methods maybe would fit in that category. They would be, they'd be a bit dishonest. We were talking at lunch today with some guys, and they were mentioning how uh, several of them had experiences with sort of survey evangelism. So you go up to the door, you're, you're acting like you're taking a survey, and uh, it, they're got gospel-related questions, right? And so, you know, how do you think people get to heaven? You're pretending to write your answer down. What do you think? Do you think people are sinful? You know, write their answer down. Do you mind if I tell you what the Bible says about that? And then you start sharing the gospel. So again, can God work in that environment? Of course he can. Is that a bit duplicitous? <laughs> you're not recording, you're not taking the results for anything. Um, I just, I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say about that method, right? Like, is that an open statement of the truth? Are you, are you, like, why are you, why are you soft pedaling it? Like, why, why do you need to feel like you've got to, you've got to kind of couch it in this way? Why can't you just go up to that person, befriend them, and share the gospel with them? So again, what, what's going on there? I think Paul might, might, might press into some of that, just, just a, a basic example. And so any, you know, again, like he says, any method that tampers with God's word, you know, how do we tamper with God's word? We water it down. We, sh- we kind of sand off the rough edges about sin. We lead with the fact that God has a wonderful plan for your life. We minimize the fact that, that you're a sinner. Or we say, you know, God's come to save you from your pain. And we just want to help you with your pain. And we just totally minimize sin and idolatry and those things. That's not an open statement of the truth. So any method that's going to kind of promote that or, or avoid the sting of sin or that misdiagnoses problems um, are to be avoided. Another text here that, again, just learning from Paul's example, 1 Thess 2 I'll just read it to you. He says, he, he, Paul had come to the Thessalonians and evangelized them, and now he's kind of recounting what he did when he was there. He said, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So any method that flatters any method that's sort of subtly seeking glory to people or making much of man or maybe putting a celebrity on stage because we want to just adds credibility to the gospel because this celebrity is here. Paul would have nothing of that. No words of flattery, not speaking to please men. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We're not coming with a pretext for greed. We're not trying to, to make money off of this. We're not trying to get a notch in our evangelism belt to boast about how many converts we have. That's not what Paul is doing. He's coming in boldness, simplicity, in suffering, with clarity. 
with his gospel message. So any, any method, my point here is any method, any strategy that cuts against the grain of this is the strategy that we want to avoid. And a healthy church will avoid that. And if you want to kind of put a bow on all this, 2 Timothy 1.8, he tells Timothy, you know, here's Paul about to die for the sake of Christ in prison. And he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of how it seems to be foolish, how it's scorned, how its apostles are put in prison and are on death row. Don't be ashamed of this because it's the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, he says. So any method that's sort of kind of like, you kind of want to change the gospel up a little bit, you know, make it relevant to the world and be cool and be popular and bestseller this, and that's, that's, not, that's not the methods that we want to promote. All right? Methods of evangelism that tamper with God's word have an underhanded approach or aren't transparent what we're trying to do. They should be rejected. Also methods that try to please man, entertain man, and are subtly ashamed of the offense of the gospel, that should be rejected. But methods that proclaim God's gospel in its fullness, including the hard parts, any method that's transparent in its approach, no bait and switches, and that are motivated by the fear of God and the desire to please God, those should be promoted. And you can do that in an event. You can. In a program, you can. And so some examples of that at Timberlake are, are the following. We have a biblical counseling ministry that we fund. We have a guy on staff who does that. Why? Okay, yes, it's to equip the saints, certainly. But there's another arm of that ministry, and it's to evangelize unbelievers. Because unbelievers' lives are a mess. They see that we have counseling, and they come to us. And so we counsel them. But we don't do it. There's no bait and switches, right? It is hey, we're sitting in front of you with an open Bible. Hey, you've tried these approaches. They've not worked in your life. Let me show you what God has to say about that. And we work from the text back to the gospel, to repentance and faith. We show them how God can renovate and change a heart. We're talking hour upon hour upon hour of being in front of people with an open Bible, not watering anything down, talking through the implications of Scripture for their lives. That's a good method. It's a good program, a good strategy. Here's another one. Serving the Christian school. Okay, serving the Christian school. We just finished a, a program, if you'll call it that, a fundraiser for the school where many of you came out and did that and supported that. And likely not many of you like, act, actively shared the gospel with someone in the community. But the purpose was to raise money for the school. That's why we did that, to have fun. Like, that was an explicit purpose for what, why we did what we did. And it's for the school. And the school's purpose is also very explicitly stated to make disciples. We're training you in Christian principles. And we're evangelizing the children that come there. We're reaching out to the parents who are there. We're, we're referring them to our biblical counseling ministry. When their, their lives are coming undone, because not every person there is a believer. It's got a presence in the, in the community. People know about this school. People come and they, they hear about what we're doing. So it's very frontal. There's nothing underhanded about what we're doing in an event like that. It's raising money for the school, and the school will kind of gives us opportunities that abound to invest in people's lives. Um, we promote 
Uh, fostering and adoption, another way. Promote fostering and adoption. We don't have any formal programs or don't put any money toward that, but we promote it. We highlight people who do it um, in our church because that is another great way. You get the, an, an unbelieving child, normally, into your family for either a short period of time in fostering or, you can ado- or, or adoption for their life, and you have an opportunity to influence a child that otherwise wouldn't have had that kind of gospel opportunity. Fostering and adoption. Another way is just by kind of ordinary hospitality, right? Ordinary hospitality. And again, we, we emphasize this at church. We're not funding it necessarily. Um, but we, we emphasize and we hold these, these folks up. I've, several of our members have gone, have specifically bought homes or moved to locations for the express purpose of opening their homes up to those members in that particular community to get to know them to share the gospel with them. If that's of interest to you and you'd like to observe that and see that work, and I can give you those, those names of those folks. They're not doing it for any fanfare, but they're doing it because they want to open their homes uh, for the sake of Christ. If you want a good read on that, you could read Rosaria Butterfield's um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Incredibly fruitful. Incredibly fruitful ministry. She invites the folks in. They have dinner with her family. Um, it's almost every night of the week that the people are over in their home. Doors are wide open. It's a mix of church people and unbelievers. And every time they're invited, they can stay or leave, but they pass out Bibles, they brew coffee, and the husband is a pastor, and he gives a devotional. And they talk about the the scriptures and suffering and how Christ interacts with that. And people, you know, object, and there's talk. I mean, it's how she was saved. She was a lesbian. And a pastor welcomed her into his home on a weekly basis. And she was taught. And she repented and came to faith in Christ. And so, again, a lot to commend that method of just radical, ordinary hospitality. Another example that TBC tries to promote is evangelistic Bible studies. When I say promote, I just mean we try to equip you and give you resources to go and do that. So, again, that's befriending folks and say, hey, will you study the scriptures with me on this issue, on this area? And then, bam, you get together, open the Bible. Again, nothing underhanded about that. And so there's just a, some examples. There's more. But a healthy church is going to kind of know the dangers of bad methods and what they imply. And a healthy church is going to promote the good methods and really try to mobilize folks to get behind some of those things. So, again, not all programs are bad. And so a healthy church, number four, sixth reason, the fourth reason that a healthy church is going to evangelize and will lead to evangelism is because it utilizes a variety of gifts to work together for conversions. A healthy church utilizes a variety of gifts to work together for conversions. What do I mean by that? When Christ saves people, he gifts people. If you're saved tonight, you have a gift. At least one. And he's gifted you. You don't have all the gifts. You have one of the gifts. You're like one part of the body, you know, of a multi-part body. Okay? And for the body to work, you've got to work. You've got to use your gift. You've got to be involved. You've got to be committed. And those gifts, as they work together, 
They work together to build up saints, to, to build up this body for sure, but they also work together. The building up the body means also bringing people into the body, right? That's the evangelism side of the Great Commission. So the variety of gifts works together for conversions as well, not just for maturation. And that's, you can see that pretty clearly back in our text in Ephesians 4, at the end of that paragraph in verse 16. He says, The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that's you and I, the gifted, gifted body members, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that makes the body grow is, is qualitative and quantitative, meaning like quality, meaning it's growing in depth and maturity, but it's growing also in number through conversions. So as each part is working properly, Paul's saying, as you're using your gifts and I'm using mine, then we're working together and people are coming to faith in Christ. So one of the helpful correctives in our minds to even personal evangelism is that the Bible almost always has evangelism envisioned in groups, teams of evangelism. So think about it. Christ always sent his disciples out. How? In pairs? Yep. Paul rarely ever, if ever, I can't think of an example, um, but rarely if ever traveled alone in his missionary endeavors. Their evangelism was always a team approach. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. But at least one of those reasons is that in the church we each possess different gifts. No one has all of them. And and the gifts contribute to evangelism and church planting in different ways. You follow me? So let me, let me illustrate this. Let's just take a few examples. The gift of mercy. Say so you have the gift of mercy, which is the folks who excel in ministering to the hurting and the suffering. That's the gift of mercy. You excel in ministering. Your hearts are huge. You empathize quickly. You recognize the plight of others and you want to help and do something tangible about it. That's mercy, gift of mercy. They often connect relationally with unbelievers because of their sincere love and their desire to help them. But they often, not always, but they often lack the gift of discernment or exhortation. Meaning, okay, wow, here's the root issue of this person. Wow, they're they're really presenting like this, but they're really this. And they need to be exhorted, you know, in this area to repent and kind of that bold approach. Because they're merciful. They, they empathize. Huge heart. Harder to, harder to see into those things for those, those folks. And, and Christ has gifted them and limited them in that way. So then the gift of discernment is the believer who excels in dis- dis- distinguishing between what's true and false. They can see root issues clearly. They can speak to them with clarity as well. But they may not always be the most tender. <laughs> Trust me. I know from experience. So you can see how the merciful and the discerner could be a fantastic combo in evangelism. Right? And we learn from one another. It doesn't, just because I may not have the gift of mercy, doesn't mean I shouldn't be merciful or or tenderhearted or kind. Um, I should should be and, and try to be those things. But, the, the, where you're going to excel, that's the spiritual gifting. Where you excel, what, you, what, what is just 
is spiritually natural to you is your, your spiritual gifting. We want to maximize that. All right? And then, okay, let's say we've got the gift of mercy, gift of discernment, and then combine that, that, two, that duo with a third person who is gifted in serving or gifted in helps. Let's say like, they like to practice hospitality and make meals and do those kinds of things. And now you've got a recipe for a warm and inviting in-home Bible study. But if you only had someone with the gift of teaching, oh yeah, that's another gift, right? So the gift of teaching. So that guy can skillfully and simply explain the gospel or walk through the book of Mark and apply it to an unbeliever because he's gifted in that way. He handles the scriptures well. He can communicate that well to people. And so you, you combo those four people together in an in-home Bible study. You bring about four or five unbelievers in there. That's going to be a cool group, right? The body's going to be working together to explain and apply and model the gospel and Christ's love. But the point is that the church impacts our evangelism by giving us a variety of gifts to be used together for the building up of the body. So that means, we touched on this last time, but that means that you should not envy others' gifts. Because you have one, likely a couple, And Christ has been intentional in that gifting for you. So it doesn't mean, okay, great, I have a gift of helps, and so I never have to share the gospel. I never have to be vocal about it. That's That's not the point, okay? But you may not be as good at it as the guy who, or the gal, who is gifted in that way, or perceived to be as good at it, right? But don't envy others' gifts. Instead, maximize your own gift, so we see that language in the Bible, like fan the flame of the gifting, Paul tells Timothy. So fan that flame, what's he saying? He's saying maximize your gifting. It doesn't mean that just because I'm gifted, it's static, and I can never grow in it. No, you can grow in your gifts. And you want to learn to maximize those gifts. But then also, don't envy others, maximize your own gifts, but also lean on others, even in evangelism. Lean on others. What do I mean by that? Well, again, just to take our example, let's say you have the gift of mercy and you're a newer believer. You befriend that person and say, hey, I got this other friend <laughs> who, they're about five years ahead of me in the faith and they could really explain this to you a lot better than I could. Will you come eat with me with him? You know? Yes. Do that. Or, hey, I got this friend. I, I don't have time, but man, I don't even have a house. Uh, I'm just in a dorm. I'm eating ramen noodles. But that person in the, in the church has a, has a home. They open their home every, every Tuesday night. Um, would you, can we go to that together? Like, I think you could really connect with some other people. Maybe you know who's going to be there. And you think, oh, that person could explain the gospel to them really well. But that person, whew, confront a lot. So let's put this person with them. And so, you know, set them up, right? So again, I'm just, I'm helping you, trying to help you think through how the church evangelizes and works together in that, in that evangelism. And then, speaking of gifts, that leads to our fifth way that the church impacts evangelism. And that's by raising up qualified evangelists. Our fifth reason that a healthy church will evangelize is because a healthy church, Christ will see to it that that church, is, is, he will raise up evangelists within that church.
And here you can think of sort of a capital E evangelist. Not, not like a lowercase e evangelist, like all of us are supposed to be evangelists in some sense of evangelizing, sharing the gospel. This is the capital E sense. What is that evangelist? Well, this is someone particularly gifted by God, according to Ephesians 4, 11. Someone particularly gifted by God in evangelism and church planting. So what we see in the New Testament, the New Testament data of this evangelist. Now, there's not a lot of it. There's not a lot of data on it. So, but Philip in Acts is called an evangelist. He's the only one with that title. And what you see of Philip is he's traveling around, sharing the gospel, making converts, planting churches. But probably the, the greatest example, although he's never given the title of an evangelist, is the Apostle Paul. Even though he's never given the title, the verb evangelize, which is typically just translated proclaim the, proclaim the gospel or preach even, that's how it'll be translated, but it's the, literally the verb to preach the gospel. That's almost, it's used of him more than any other person in the Bible. And so I don't think he's called an evangelist because he was, a, he was an apostle. Right? That was his title. And apostles evangelized, especially Paul. Um, but his protege, Timothy, he told Timothy, and Timothy was an extension of his ministry, he told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Which means Timothy wasn't supposed to think that, that Ephesus was his long-term ministry as he was there in Ephesus. Meaning, he was supposed to set the work in order, appoint elders, make sure that church was stable, and then he's supposed to get on the road and keep evangelizing, keep planting churches. Do the work of an evangelist, he told Timothy. So that is an evangelist, capital E. It's someone particularly gifted by God in evangelism and church planting. And so the church has a role in this process. Okay, where do they come from? Where do evangelists come from? Well, look at Acts 11. If you've been in the discipleship class that I've been teaching, I, this will be review. We kind of touched on this there. But in Acts, you see a process or a, a progression. Jesus sees to it that disciples kind of scatter and they go these places. Verse 19, you know, they're even scattering from Jerusalem, which was kind of first phase of the mission, scattering from Jerusalem because of that persecution. And they travel kind of down to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. And they start proclaiming the gospel. And then these Hellenists start believing. And there was like a massive sort of conversion in Antioch, it says in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and these are just unnamed disciples. We don't know who they were. They were sharing the gospel. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So you've got conversions happening, and they're gathered up in, in Antioch as the church. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So again, this is a massive event that happened. Conversion. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, let me just summarize what you see here. A lot of conversions. Church in Jerusalem came, authenticated, this is, wow, this is a work of God, these people have the Spirit, um, they need teaching. That was first impulse. They need to be taught. So, Barnabas is saying, and I, you know, it's too much for me. So, I'm going to go get Saul. So, he goes and gets Saul, another gifted teacher, brings him in, and they intensively teach this group for a year. That's like what they do. I mean, they're certainly evangelizing still, but the, the purpose of this is they're intensively teaching. So, this church is maturing. So, there's conversion. Then they start maturing, second phase. They start maturing. And they mature to the point that the people around them start calling them little Christs. Like that was like a, a kind of a, <laughs> that wasn't a name they gave themselves. The people around them were like, hmm. They're saying they're following Jesus. They're like, little, they're like little Christs. They're maturing to the point that they look like Jesus in Antioch. So fast forward. The next time you see this church come up, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch, same church, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Where did these guys come from besides Barnabas and Saul? They came from within the congregation. They were part of that group that the Spirit is raising up in that church to be teachers in this church. Leadership, in other words, has come out of this maturing church. You have conversion, maturation, leadership that's now to the point of being recognized. And there's maybe even we could say a surplus. And notice what happens next. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the church sends off Barnabas and Saul. The Spirit appoints them for this new church planting endeavor, this new evangelistic endeavor, out of this maturing context. So my point is that a healthy church that's given to intensive teaching, what you're going to see is the raising up of leaders and a surplus for the purpose of multiplication. Is that clear? So that's the fifth reason that a healthy church will evangelize, is because it raises up qualified evangelists. So what's involved in this raising up of evangelists? Okay, well, a couple things. Identifying gifts. Right? So the gifts of Christ are freely given by Christ, and we can enhance them and maximize them, but we can't create them. So it's on the congregation to recognize the gifts when we see them. So we see a guy or a gal being really fruitful in their gift, we should affirm them in that. And in particular, when we see a man who's gifted in evangelism, we should recognize him. So then there's training. So identifying, there's training. This makes sure that they are biblically qualified, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that character is developing, and that they're competent in evangelism. They understand the gospel. Like Apollos, I kind of pull him aside. Okay, you're gifted, dude. All right, but Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside, and they're like, you need to understand the gospel more fully than you do. Okay, let me, let me equip you in that. So it's the sort of pulling aside, making sure they're competent, equipped, ready to go. It involves, number three, raising support 
So that would be giving money to send them and support them in this new work. And it would involve sending a team. Sending a team. Strategically choosing people who would complement the evangelist. Like Barnabas did for Saul. And maybe even more. Because there's obviously they weren't, they weren't the only two that were traveling. We know that from other references in Acts. There's typically a team that was traveling with them. And so, what's your role? All right, well, you need to be on the lookout for the gifts, all the gifts, and affirming each other in them. But in particular, in that, for our case, the, this gift of evangelism. Encourage these folks and, and talk to your leadership about them. As you see them evangelizing, as you see fruit in their ministry, as you see boldness, you see them crucifying the fear of man, they're sticking their necks out there, tell us. Because we may not be in those environments that you're in. Another way you could encourage, you, know, you could participate is give monetarily to help train them and send them. We have a seminary, not just to have a seminary. We have a seminary to raise these men up, to train these men and launch them out. So give to that. Help us train them. Help us send them. And potentially even consider going with them as part of the team. Consider going with them. Consider choosing a vocation that is mobile that you can relocate to that area so you're not a burden on the church financially and you can work and be an asset to their evangelism. So there's lots of ways that we can contribute here to this, to this church planting endeavor. But a healthy church will evangelize because Christ will see to it that he raises up qualified evangelists. All right, and that leads us to our sixth reason that a healthy church will evangelize, and that's because it proclaims truth during the corporate gatherings. And this one's obvious. But when we're together, when we gather, we are given to edification, yes. But what is edification? The edification is just the preaching of truth. It's the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Christ. And so there's a very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 14 that talks about what happens in a church when the speech, when the truth is clear. When the truth is clear in a congregation and an unbeliever comes in there. It's kind of in this section of, of 1 Corinthians where he's talking about tongues and prophecy. And they were enamored with tongues. They were thinking, that's, that's, the, that's the gift you've got to have. You know? And Paul is essentially saying, look, unless you can interpret it, make it clear, and it's actually from God, then I would rather you prophesy. Because prophecy is a clear word of truth, intelligible, understandable. And when God's word is clear in his church, things happen. All right, so look in verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? His point is that if it's not being interpreted, it's not helpful to the body. So that eliminates like 99% of, of charismatic churches right there. So, okay, this isn't helpful. It needs to be interpreted so that it can be clear. All right, verse 24. 
but if all but if all prophesy meaning if all are getting revelation from God and they're able to articulate that clearly I mean it's again hyperbole uh, all prophesy because we know that not everybody has all the gifts but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters he is convicted by all he is called to account by all the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So just because we teach the truth and try to equip the saints doesn't mean that when an unbeliever walks in here, they're going to say, that's my heart. You just read my heart. And the implications of that text read my heart. That's exactly what I think. That's exactly why I do what I do. I have to repent. God is among you. And so, I don't want you to misunderstand the fact that when, when the church gathers, yes, we, our, our intended audience is the saints. But, that doesn't mean that God is not working in and through the proclamation of the, of the word, through the gospel, in the corporate gatherings, to save people who come here. So, don't be afraid to invite your unbelieving friends and co-workers to the assembly. And, Church, don't act weird when someone brings you an unbeliever in the church, okay? And introduces them to you. We want to be a place where people come in and we're not watering down anything, right? Christ was, he was truth. Nothing was watered down about him, but sinners came to him. Sinners associated with him because he brought truth, but he did it in love. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in that for Ephesians 4. The truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him. Love compels us to speak the truth to each other and to, even to unbelievers. And so people come into our assembly, they come in unconverted, they hear about their sin, the life-giving message of the gospel, and they are saved. So we don't just... The only, what we're not doing is we're not gearing our main equipping ministry to the unconverted. But we do preach the gospel. Alright, so if we kind of bring all this to a head here, to answer our question in the beginning, does the corporate church have a role in evangelism? The answer is yes, right? It just might not look how we thought, how we're conditioned to think in modern evangelicalism with the big kind of programmed glitzy approach. For a healthy church, not only will it have a role, but evangelism is inevitable. A healthy church will multiply. Christ will see to it that His people mature, and that part of that maturity is that they faithfully and zealously share the good news. Point number one. Christ also loves to answer prayer, and He has ordained prayer as the means of accomplishing His sovereign will of church planting. Christ has also designed His church to promote faithful methods while each of the members work together in those methods to win others to Christ. As the gifts are on display, he raises up his evangelists to go to the nations, and we send them out. And most obviously, Christ has ordained his church as the pillar and support of the truth. We are a city on a hill, so that when people come into our assembly, we can be confident that they will meet Christ through his word. Amen? So that's the church's role in evangelism. And that ends our 
study. Um, I'm happy to field any questions that we didn't get to uh, in, our, in our study, so feel free to come and chat with me afterwards. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the clarity um, from your word, and I pray that from this study we would think carefully, we would have good conversations about how we can continue to pour um, fuel on the fire of our evangelism, how we can spur one another on to be more faithful in this area, uh, how we can help each other work together in this, give us ideas, help us think creatively on campus, um, off campus, in our neighborhoods, across town. And Lord, we pray that you would convert sinners into saints, uh, that you would raise up evangelists among us and send them to the nations. And we ask it in Christ's name.